Um, everybody, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, we are going to go digging today. So let's be ready for that. Um, first of all, I want to real quick acknowledge that the school year is in full force. We're like almost a month in. And I want to real quick just acknowledge how many of y'all are international students in this room right now? We've got, look at this. Look at that. Yeah. And so if you've been coming for a little while, um, or maybe this is your first, your first week here, we just want to make sure that you know how much we love you. And we're so thankful that you're, that you're here with us. And, um, and we're looking forward to the rest of the school year with you. And if you ever need anything, you make sure you come and find me, okay? Um, I'd be glad to answer any questions for you. And uh, I, there's a lot of people here that love you. I just want to make sure that's known. Um, we are going to study the Word of God today. Yeah. So Romans chapter 9. Lexi just gave me a crazy look. Am I acting weird? You gave me a crazy look. I'm really excited. So be in Romans chapter 9. Be ready. My boy Mankit here is going to read for us and then, and then pray for us. Can you do that? Okay. Okay. Um, Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. I, my conscience also bear, bearing me witness in the Holy, Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and uh, continuous sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from, from Christ for my brother, uh, brother uh, my, my kinsman, According to uh, my according to the flesh, um, who uh, Israelite uh, to whom payment, payment um, the adoption and the glory and uh, confidence and the giving giving of the Lord of the law and the service of God and the promise says, um, whose are uh, the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Dear Father, I thank you for this uh, this morning we can get together and hear from you. Father, help us to uh, humble ourselves and uh, help us to um, have, um, you know, um, uh, hear from you, um, be sensitive with your, with your spirit, help us to know that, uh, to understand your word. Uh, not just understand your word, but help us to uh, apply to our lives. Yes, God. But I pray for Brandon. Uh, um, use the spirit to lead him and guide him to speak the truth enough and use the um, the, the, the the right word uh, to help us uh, to understand and uh, use him to uh, to lead us and guide us. Father, we thank you. I pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Jesus. Thank you. The, uh, this is definitely... Oh, that thing. What does that thing even do, by the way? My peas? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take your word because you're way smarter than me. Okay. I'm super loud. It's cool. Let's do it. So, I want to make uh, sure, going into this today, that we are uh, completely aware of some, some things, okay? Uh, first of all, we are a church that teaches the Bible expositorily. And what that, what that means is, there's always so much cord, too. You know what I mean? It's just, this is made for someone who's like eight feet tall. Like someone that's head should be like way up here. Um, we are a church that, that teaches the Bible expositorily. 
Okay? And what that means is that we preach the Bible through, right? We start at the beginning of the book and we preach it through. We start at the beginning and we work our way through it. And we do that unapologetically, okay? And, and, and now here's the thing. That's awesome because what it does is it allows us to... Should I just get rid of it? I don't mind. Does it just need to be turned down? How's that? Is that better? Can you hear me? Okay, cool. We, we found a sweet spot. Um, so what that means is that you get to learn God's word in its context. So as we move through the passage... You understand that what we're learning isn't like an island of information. You know, a lot of churches today teach what we call topically. And so what they'll do is that they'll allow a culture or some sort of topic that exists in, in society to kind of guide them through uh, their teaching. And, and that's completely fine. And sometimes you'll hear us teach topically if it's necessary. But what we believe is that the word of God uh, in its perfect timing reveals exactly what we need. And it applies at every given moment. That's kind of how we believe. And so we teach expositorily working through passages. Now sometimes that proves to be a little bit inconvenient for the teacher. Because you're not allowed to gloss over. This is, just, this is turning out to be like a, uh, a Marx Brothers skit. My, my pulpit just shrunk in front of me. And I'm not strong enough to get it back up. There we go. This is great. <laughs> Satan's loving this. Uh, so what that, that means is that there's things that I come across in Scripture that I have no choice but to study. Okay? And I have no choice but to dive into. And I have no choice but to teach. And Romans chapter 9 is one of those sections that a lot of pastors would probably choose to avoid uh, if given the opportunity, primarily because of its controversy uh, theologically, okay? And, and so what I want you to do with me today is, is, first of all, recognize that I am not apologizing for what I'm going to teach you, because what I am going to teach you is what the Bible says, okay? And second of all, I want you to know that if you're a visitor... Or maybe you're not incredibly familiar with the Bible, okay? That I am going to present this to you with ease and with gentleness. But there might be some things that do just kind of go over your head. And that's okay. If you've got questions, you should ask me. You can email me anytime. Just, just reach out to me or reach out to someone here that you know uh, might have an answer for you. And, and they'll help you as best you can. But you might not catch everything today. Is that Okay. And I want you to give yourself permission to not like, like figure everything out just because we sat down here for 45 minutes and opened, your, opened the Bible and, and talked about it. There'll be things that you miss, and that's okay. All right? Um, but I'll be keeping my eyes out for, for eyes that look like this. Like, that's my like, curious look. I don't know if I know how to do that or not. But, um, so just be aware of that. Now, last week we introduced Romans chapter 9 by talking about Paul's burden for the nation of Israel. Okay, this is the people that he came from. This is, this is his lineage, is, is the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And what we read about is Paul's absolute burden for them. Because what's happened is this church in Rome, again, is full of Jews and Gentiles who've been converted to Christianity. And, and, and what's happening here is that, that over the, as the years continue to precede, 
um, what they're recognizing is the Jewish people are not turning from their ways. They're not turning from the law and coming to know Jesus Christ. But what they're seeing is the Jewish people are blinded to the truth of who the Messiah truly is. You understand that? And so, and so as he's writing the, this, his desire is to address a couple things concerning the nation of Israel. He wants to make sure that the church has clarity as it concerns the people of God, the people that, that God raised up. And so where the first few chapters, up to, really up to chapter 9, have been about an individual salvation. They've been about the context has been Paul describing for us what we have in our salvation, in knowing Jesus Christ, in being set free from our sins and forgiven of our sins. Now he's transitioning into this conversation about God's relationship to the nation of Israel. And if you look at verse 14, can you do that real quick? You can see the primary question on the floor is this what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with God God forbid now listen that question is very very relevant because because what the Jews are asking themselves is has God forgotten his people that he promised all those things remember last week we looked at all the promises that God gave to the nation of Israel all those covenants all those um, things that he promised them in his word and through the prophets Is God just forgetting those things? Because if God just says, you know what, all those things I said to you, just just forget that stuff. Let's just imagine I never said it, okay? And let's just part ways. You know, it's been really good. It's been good, um, but now it's time that I just go my way, you go yours, and, and no, 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 no. That would make God unrighteous and a liar. And so what we have to recognize is that Paul is going to lay out for us both the past, present, and future relationship of God towards Israel. And the context goes from an individual and a personal salvation context to discussing the salvation of the nation of Israel. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Okay. If it doesn't, if it doesn't I hope that it does as we go along. Uh, but if not, again, make sure that you um, ask questions. All right, are we ready here? Yeah. Does that swirling of the cursor convey readiness? Okay, I'm going to pray again. All right, let's ask that the Lord would be with us um, because there is a lot to cover and it can be a little heady and I want to make sure that you get it. Okay, so we need to invite the Spirit to be here with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do welcome your Spirit in this place. We do welcome your your presence, your very presence with us. And God, um, the, the content that we're going to look at here There's a lot of people in this room who have confessed that this is difficult for them. That they've confessed that theologically uh, that that this has been a hard concept for them. And and maybe there's a lot of us who are raised with a particular uh, bent as it concerns Romans chapter 9. But God, I pray that you would, through your spirit, reveal to us exactly what you meant when when you had Paul write this so many years ago. And uh, and Lord, I pray, because I know that to you, every word is precious to you. Everything that you conveyed and everything that was transcribed and everything that's been preserved all along the way is precious to you and not a bit of it should should fall to the ground, just like Samuel. Uh, We shouldn't let any of it fall away and we can't just dismiss it. And we can't just say, well, this is hard and this is a mystery and we don't get to do that, God. You've given us a complete word and we have the ability to compare scripture with scripture. And so, God, I just ask that you would make us diligent to do so and that we wouldn't just dismiss the the pattern of who you are. We need to know you. 
and we need your help. And, and, and well, uh, this idea of predestination is a serious one because, because God, if you predetermined that some would go to hell, I don't know how that makes you a loving God. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us, those of us who struggle with those concepts, Lord, come to recognize that you are loving. And that you've given us all an opportunity to know you. And we learn that in Romans chapter 1, and we learn it in Romans chapter 8, and Lord, we learn it again afresh here. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so, Paul was burdened for Israel. And um, he's going to talk to us here about the history of God's plan for the nation of Israel. And he's going to go way back, and he's going to talk about uh, some of the very first characters in the inception of the nation as a way of expressing to us how he elected them to be his people. Okay? So, first of all, we're going to start with this principle again. Remember we talked about this last week. That the very first principle of Bible study is this one of context. Okay, and I'm giving you a little bit different approach to my definition uh, from last week. I want to give you another facet of it. So here is another definition of context. Context, as a Bible study principle, is this. Knowing the circumstances that form the setting, the events, the statements, and the ideas in order to understand how they should be understood and applied okay, to our lives. In other words, that if we don't look at God's words as they relate to all of God's words, if we don't look at the setting of Romans chapter 9, if we don't look at the history, if we don't look at the entirety of, of what Paul is saying, we can easily misinterpret this, this uh, section of Scripture as being about uh, the salvation of individuals, because that's what we were talking about. And we can mindlessly go into this chapter and assume that, that the nation of Israel is just an example of a, a, to us of God's desire to predetermine some people to heaven and some people to hell. And that's not what's happening here. We must look at the context in order to understand what it is that God is saying. This Bible principle is crucial. And it leads us to other Bible principles. Okay, So the next uh, set of principles is this idea of three types of biblical application. Whenever you're reading scripture, it is very important for you to be thinking about how does this apply to me? Right? Don't you agree with me? That you want to know that how this big book with all of these words in it, some of which are very hard, propitiation, Right? Some of these words just seem difficult. Um, I want to know how this word speaks into my life. And if I desire to do that, I'm going to ask myself some serious questions about application. And so these three types of biblical application will always exist, some of them simultaneously. Okay, so first one is historical. The second one is doctrinal. And the third one's inspirational. Let's first talk about historical Historical application. These are the questions when you're studying God's word that you should ask. Now, I'm going to move quick. And if you feel like it, get your phone out and photograph this. Okay? The other thing is I'm going to put this PowerPoint online on kaya.live. And so if you want to access it later to reference it, go get it. Go, go retrieve it. It's a downloadable PowerPoint. You can get it for yourself later. Okay? These are the questions that you should be asking yourself as you read the Bible. And these are the questions that I would ask myself as I come to a passage like Romans chapter 9 to study it. Okay? Was this written to New Testament Christians like me? That's the very first thing that you want to ask because the Bible is full of all kinds of stuff, right? And it's this, this is the reason why, this, this issue right here is the reason why a lot of people get hung up, hung up on really silly things. 
I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, President Obama was giving a speech, and he was talking about how the Bible is antiquated. And how the stuff inside the Bible, we don't really apply that to our lives anymore because, you know, even the Bible says that we shouldn't eat, eat shellfish, was his statement. Right? But the problem was that he was misapplying this principle. And what he was doing is he was taking something from the Levitical law that was written to Old Testament Jews a long, long time ago and trying to apply it to a New Testament context. And you know what? His historical application was wrong. Does that make sense? And we can do this really easily if we're not paying close attention. We want to ask ourselves questions like, who was this written to? And was it written to me? Because I am a New Testament Christian. I live in the church age. And so I need to make sure that in terms of doctrine, I'm getting stuff that's written to me. Okay? So questions like, if not, if this passage is not written to New Testament Christians, like books like, like um, you know, Malachi, or books like Habakkuk, right? Words that are just really fun to say, right? All right? Haggai. Books like that. Are they, what? Don't look at me like that. Okay? Books like that that are hard to say, are they written to me or are they written to someone else? Perhaps the Jewish people. So if not, who was it written to and what was the time frame and the circumstances surrounding the record? Yeah? And then how does this knowledge impact my perspective on the rest of Scripture? Because... Because uh, if you misapply history and you misapply who the letter was written to and you misapply who the, the information was given to, then you are going to take that. And you know what? Pretty, pretty soon you're going to find yourself doing all kinds of crazy stuff like, why aren't we sacrificing goats this morning? <laughs> why, why aren't we doing that? That's a good question. Hmm. Let's start. And I'm sure there are some churches somewhere in the United States this morning because they don't understand this are sacrificing goats. Now, they might be doing it in quiet because they don't want PETA to catch women. <laughs> right? Or people that are just like, even as simple as why we're not Seventh-day Adventists. Why is it that we don't only worship on Saturdays because that's the Sabbath and, and treating, treating the church age like, like as though it's kind of like the Old Testament or, or a different dispensation. And so this is very important because you can get real messed up. And it's the reason why we don't do things like, oh, speak in tongues here. Because we understand that that's a different dispensation. Are you guys with me? Okay. So historical application is very important. Next, we want to look at the doctrinal application. So again, we ask ourselves, was this written to New Testament Christians like me? And if yes, like, like Romans, like Ephesians, Philippians, and what we call the Pauline epistles, those letters are written to New Testament Christians. And if yes... Where else does God talk about this in the Bible? Because, this is why this is important. Because if there's a one-off in Scripture, right? If there's a passage that we don't quite understand, we should be able to go to other places in Scripture that talk about that and frame a doctrinal perspective. Because a lot of times, if we're not looking at a pattern in Scripture, then it's not really proving a rule. And I could get some really crazy stuff, right? If I'm, if I'm just taking one verse, pulling it out of context... And I'm not finding the character of God in that in terms of pattern. I can get in big trouble. So how does this information, another question, how does this information affect my perspective of God, the church, his word, and my ministry? Those are all New Testament concepts, a complete word, the church, ministry. And so what we're talking about is how do those things, how do those doctrines that you're pulling from Scripture, how do they impact you? Because doctrine, truth, the word doctrine means truth, should be impacting your life. And if it's not... Shame on you. 
It should be impacting you. It should be changing the way you see things. Then, if this wasn't written to New Testament Christians like me, who was it written to and what are the truths, truths that belong to that people group? All right? Now, what we're going to realize, and we'll look at this in a minute, is that Romans chapter 9 is this and this. Because it's written to New Testament Christians, it's supposed to frame our doctrine. But what it's doing for us is giving us a, a perspective on people who don't fall within the New Testament uh, Christian perspective, right? Does that, does that make sense? I'll make that a little bit clearer as we go along. The last thing is inspirational, okay? The Bible needs to be inspirational. Um, so whether this was written to New Testament Christians like me or to another people group, what can I learn from it about the character of God? Because God, even though his approach to humanity has changed throughout time, his heartbeat has never changed. He is unchanging. His character remains the same, regardless of whether or not the people of the world are sacrif making sacrifices to him as animals or they're making sacrifices to him with their lives in ministry. His desire is the same either way, is that people would worship and obey him. Yeah? And so what we want to be doing is whether or not something's written to us, that, that, that isn't relevant in terms of inspiration because we want to know God's heartbeat and we want to respond to it because we want our heartbeat to be the same. Yeah? So how does the, the content motivate you to be more consecrated? You know, I can read 1 Samuel, like, like what we're studying in main service, and I can, even though the doctrinal content and that information applies to the nation of Israel, I can learn many, many, many things inspirationally from that book. In fact, 1 Samuel, to me, is one of the most inspirational books in the entire, entirety of Scripture. And how does the content impact your personal calling? Okay, now... We haven't even gotten into Romans 9 yet. But this is important information. Why? Okay, in the case of Romans 9, let's go to the next slide. Here is our historical framework. Romans 9 was written with the intent to better understand God's plan for the nation of Israel in light of Gentile salvation. Okay, so what's happening? What's happening historically here? Oh, what's happening is, is that all these Gentiles are getting saved. And some Jews are getting saved. Has God forgotten his people? What does this mean for the nation of Israel? That's the question that's on the floor. Okay, is Israel's promise void? And what we're going to learn is, of course not. Of course not. Is God unrighteous? Is he, is he a liar? Is he lying? No, of course he's not. And so that's what we're going to look at historically. That's the framework for the passage that we're looking at. Next, the doctrine in Romans chapter 9 applies to God's perspective of Israel in the past and his election of the nations and governments to execute, execute his sovereign plan for the world. And so we are going to talk about election. Not as it concerns the individual, okay, but the election of certain nations and people groups to be used by God to affect his sovereign plan for the world. Alright? Okay. Next, inspiration. Romans 9 should inspire us to have God's perspective of Israel. To pray for them in anticipation of their salvation. We should be heartbroken for Israel the same way Paul was at the introduction of this letter, or of this, of this chapter. Yeah? We should have that same heart. And this should remind us of God's loyalty to his children, which we are, not the same as the nation of Israel, but we are his children, and ultimate plan for all of mankind. And that's the inspiration from this passage. So far, are we, is it a little heady? I'm sorry. Yes. It's a, is it a little bit over your head? I apologize. Carly, I apologize. 
This is like my little sister. Has everybody met Carly yet? Okay. So why is all this important? Because right, I, know, I know that you're going to miss some of this. Okay. And it's okay. It's okay. All right, if you've got questions, come ask me. I'm around. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. But this is why this is important. Because the Reformed theological position, right? This, a particular theological system that we would maybe refer to as covenant theology or Reformed theology would frame Romans chapter 9 in a way that makes it about a national, uh, takes away the national salvation, makes it about an individual salvation. And if you do that, it messes up the character of God. And I can't stress that enough. It messes up the character of God. Okay, so let me explain to this, this to you a little bit uh, more clearly. W- when you mess with Romans chapter 9, it can mislead you. And it can cause you to substantiate a doctrine that we refer to oftentimes as Calvinism, okay? which is summarized as such. And this is, again, because I'm not trying to beat you over the head. I want you to understand this, this theological perspective. okay? And I want to give it to you very simply and as clear as I can. So let's talk about Calvinism real quick. You, did, you didn't know you were taking an LFBI class this morning. <laughs> but these are the breaks. Expository preaching, baby. Okay, Calvinism is the belief. And this is a summary, okay? But I'm pulling this directly from, from their councils and their, their, their doctrinal statements. Calvinism is the belief that before time began, God determined who would and would not be saved unto himself. And this is called unconditional election. Okay? That before he even made the earth and made people, that he just determined before the world began, um, they're going to heaven, they're going to hell. Heaven, hell, heaven, hell. Okay, now the problem with that is it's a very arbitrary feeling, isn't it? That I haven't even come into the world yet. You've already determined that I'm, that I'm not fit to be in your kingdom, Lord. Right? And, it, and in many ways it contradicts what scripture says. So what does it imply? It implies the very disturbing doctrine that while God says he loves all people, he says he loves all people. His scripture is clear. Doesn't he love all people? It's clear in scripture. But he chooses that he's going to damn the majority of humanity. And if we're being honest, with it, we mean the majority of humanity. The majority of people that are living in this world right now do not profess to be Bible-believing Christians. And either God determined that before the world began, or it's their choice. Right? So he, he damns the majority of humanity to hell before they even take their first breath. Boy, that's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy. And so we really need to understand what passages like Romans chapter 9 mean. Also, Calvinism, the next slide there, is the belief that humanity has no free will to choose Christ. That we don't even have free will. Oh boy. Who's been in a philosophy class before in college? You've taken philosophy. This gets addressed, right? Like, you have that conversation in, in philosophy about determinism and versus free will. And really, what you end, at the end of that unit, what you conclude is that both are true. Philosophers determined that a long time ago. But Calvinists haven't. Philosophers have... Listen, let's just, look at his, let's just look at our reality. Could anybody control what happened in Houston with those floods? Now, certainly certain things in the world are determined, right? You, we can't control the weather yet. Some of us think that we're going to be able to. But we can't control the weather. Those things are determined. Certain things in the world are just determined to be. Like weather patterns. Okay? We don't have, like X-Men yet, Storm. 
Storm was the hot one, by the way. When I was young, I thought Storm. Gosh. Um, sorry, that's a that's a sidebar. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, I just, okay, but but here's the thing: there are certain things that are just determined, right? But there's reality that I can't get over the fact that I'm taking my shoe off right now, and I decided to do that. <laughs> and that I probably shouldn't have. Okay. Uh, so there's certain things that we can't, can't avoid. We get a free will. We get to make decisions. Now here's the deal. If Calvinism is true, and the belief that humanity has no free will, this, this pours out into every aspect of our, our, of our theology. Listen, it implies that we don't actually get to choose anything. But God determines all things, including human decisions. Now, who's made bad decisions? Okay, if you're a Calvinist, you're going to believe that those bad decisions were actually determined by God. And that sin itself, as well as salvation, was predetermined way before the world even began. If that's what a sovereign God is, I, I, I need to second guess what I'm believing. Okay? Are you guys with me? Okay, one more thing we'll talk about in terms of framing what Calvinism is. Calvinism is the belief that Jesus Christ didn't, he came into this world. We all acknowledge, right? Historically, Jesus Christ came into the world, the Son of God. He died on the cross and he rose again. But he didn't actually come for all of humanity. But for the elect, okay, and that's the term that Calvinists use to describe people that God determined before time would accept him. But for the elect whom he chose before time, this is called limited atonement. And this implies for us that John chapter 3 and verses 15 through 17 are a lie. Can you pull that, those verses up? That theological position makes John chapter 3 verses 15 through 17 a lie. That whosoever, whosoever... You with me? And I underline things here. Whosoever, the world, whosoever, the world, okay? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever... Do you guys understand what who's Like, I know it's King James English, but do you know what whosoever means? That means anybody. That's how we would say it today. Anybody. Anybody. That believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but the, the world through him might be saved. What do you do with the world? Oh, will we just make the world about the elect? Like the ones that God chose? No, the world doesn't mean the world. It just means uh, the people that God determined before time would be saved. And Okay, you got to do gymnastics with scripture to do that. Okay, Acts chapter 2 verse 21 would become a lie if, this, if Calvinism is true. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. No, well, not really whosoever. Just the elect. Just the elect. And, and 2 Peter 3, 9. This is a powerful one. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does all mean all here or not? Or is the Bible, are we going to, what, what do you have to do to the word of God? You literally have to cut it up and destroy it to change God's character, to make it ambiguous and confusing and arbitrary. 1 John 4.15, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And if you choose to see Romans chapter 9 as a series of case studies on predeterminism, then A, listen to me very carefully, folks. A, you're missing the main point that God has a plan for his people, the nation of Israel. You're missing that completely. 
Okay, so you miss the doctrinal application that God wants you to get. And beyond that, B, you are faced with the dilemma that God's character is contradictory throughout Scripture. And I just don't believe that to be true. All right? Yeah? Huh? Kind of. I, not, yeah, sure. I'm going to nod my head to I get Okay, listen to me. This is, this is really important. Um, this is important because it affects our view of evangelism. <laughs> You know, the mission. Everything has changed with this theological position. And I, I consider it to be important, but I do want to say this. I have many brothers and sisters in Christ that are Calvinists, and they love the Lord. And I'm not going to take that from them. And I'm going to commune with them, and I'm going to fellowship with them in any opportunity that I have. And they, and they love the Lord. They truly love the Lord. And I don't want to rob that from them. I'm just telling you that I disagree. Okay, that I disagree and that they've misinterpreted major portions of Scripture, including Romans chapter 9. Yeah? So entering into this portion of Scripture, I want you to recognize that I'll be focusing on addressing this, this doctrinal issue repeatedly. But I also want to make sure that it's incredibly clear uh, that even though I want to refute the misnomers, um, it should not deter our fellowship with people who take a Reformed position. And we, we love Calvinists. I mean, it's just, it's just a perspective. And uh, even though they differ in their, their view of Scripture, uh, we love them. All right? I just want you to have the right view. And that's my job. My job is to make sure that you see it the right way. Cool? Yeah? Okay, Romans chapter 9. Yeah, we got 15 minutes. <laughs> Verses 6 through 13. Okay, we're calling this message uh, the history of God's plan for Israel because Romans chapter 9 is about that history, about how God established his elect, meaning he established the nation. Verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Talking about in the nation of Israel, right? The truth of God has taken none effect. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. And neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they, the ch- are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Okay, so let's, let's look at this. What this is saying is that just because the nation was of the seed of Abraham doesn't mean they were all children of God. Okay? Here Paul is speaking about individual salvation. For a moment here, he's trying to draw a difference between nas- the national election and individual salvation. And this is how he says it. He says, yeah, check it out. Just because they're of Israel doesn't mean everyone's saved. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean that you're saved. It doesn't mean that you're automatically in, whether you have put your trust in Jesus or not, that you're like automatically in because you're God's people. That's not what God did. Okay? God made salvation a personal thing. In the nation of Israel, some were saved and some weren't. And Romans chapter, uh, uh, the book of Romans proves that because it was written to Jewish Christians. Some of those people had accepted Christ, but their brethren hadn't. So in the nation of Israel, some were saved and some were among the Jewish people. Some are saved and, and some are. And Paul is clarifying that it is a poor assumption for us to believe that simply because one uh, was of the tribe of Israel, that they were justified in God's eyes. Okay, now listen to me. How does that apply to us? We can take that same principle and we can apply that today, can't we? 
Just like it's a bad idea to assume that because someone was born into the nation of Israel that they're saved, the same thing is true when we look at one another. Just because someone grew up in church doesn't mean they're a child of God. Just because someone was born to very godly parents that believed the truth of God's word doesn't mean that by osmosis or by birthright that they too are children of God. You understand? And we need to understand it because here's our first key point. You cannot be born physically into a relationship with God. So whether Jew or Gentile, there is only one way to be a child of God, and that is to be born again. It is to be born again. It is to put your faith in the man, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, it was about putting your faith in God. In that dispensation, it was about, about faith. It was about faith. And that's crucial to the beginning of the conversation because the election of the nation of Israel started with what? One man's faith. One man. Who? Abraham. The election only became true after the man Abraham made a faith decision to follow after the promise. It always begins with faith. And listen to me. As history continued on after Abraham, some of his children were saved and some weren't. Hophni and Phinehas, great example. Those two were of the tribe of Israel. We just learned about them this morning. They were wicked men and they are in hell today. Right? Okay, so key point. This is super important. Whether Jew or Gentile, there's only way to be, be a child of God, and that is to be born again. For us in our dispensation in the New Testament church, the way to be saved is to confess your sins to Jesus Christ and declare him Lord of your life. And to die to you to become alive to him. It's to say, I'm putting, I'm putting all my desires out the window. My only desire is you. And just like, Lord, you died for me, I am going to live my life devoted to dead to my flesh and alive to you. I'm going to live my life devoted to you. That's salvation. It is a faith proposition. You weren't born into it. Okay? So, verse 7 says, Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Okay, well that's confusing too. All right, you read us read this nice and slow. That's, that's how I read it. Nice and slow, easy does it. I got to get everything here. Okay, so Paul tells us in these verses that the promise of the nation was imputed to Abraham because of his faith. Now, write this down. Hebrews chapter 11 supports this. That both Abraham and Sarah both came to a, a, a place of faith in God. And their salvation is wrapped up in their faith. In other words, election was only granted to, to Abraham, and, and the nation of Israel was only conceived as a result of Abraham's faith. Not simply because God made it so, because he was just like one day walking around and just like was like, okay, I'm going to make these people go to, to heaven with me, and those people go to hell. That's not how it worked. It's not arbitrary. That's not the way God thought about it. He presented Abraham with an opportunity to believe in him or not believe in him. And when he did believe in him, God said, okay, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And your people are going to bless my name. And they're going to be used. I'm going to use them as a device in this world to see the entire world saved. I'm going to use them. 
Because I love the world so much, I'm going to make your people, your tribe, missionaries to the whole world. And that's how God did it. That's, that's how the nation of Israel came about. Romans chapter 4, verse 13 says, For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham. Whoa, okay, wait a second. Wait, that's what we just read, though. No, listen. Listen carefully. For the promise, the promise, that is the election, that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed. Check it out. Through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Election, the promise only came by way of faith. Decision making. Abraham's decision to follow God. And God was like, okay, now we can do some electing. All right? Wasn't, that was good, wasn't it? Yeah. That, same, that made me feel really tough <laughs> that I could do that. Ow. <laughs> okay, listen. Verse 14. For if they which are uh, of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect, because the law worketh wrath. For, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith, that it might be by grace to the end, uh, uh, to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, not just to the Israelites, but now also uh, uh, which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, to all those who believe. In other words, God took what, what um, he was doing in the nation of Israel, okay, and because of their unbelief, put that on hold so that he might make uh, his name known to the whole world through Jesus Christ, which, by the way, came through the nation of Israel, didn't he? He was born of that tribe. That was his people. And God chose to, to put the election part on hold so that he could use Jesus Christ to make a way to the Gentiles. Because the truth is, uh, Israel failed at that. They, they didn't do it. Like, okay, yeah, you with me? All right, all right. So I want to I end on an inspirational point. So you've got you to bear with me here. Um, so faith is still necessary for salvation, and salvation is an individual decision. It's a decision that a person makes, that you make, just like Abraham made. It's not a communal one, and it's not a birthright. So listen, another key point, and it might sound a little bit like the first one, but it's important to delineate. Being a child of promise requires being a child of God first. You want the promise? Cool. It only belongs to you if you decide that you want it. If you, if you get down on your hands and knees and you pray to the Lord... God, I believe you. Then the promise becomes yours. That's true for New Testament believers, and that's true for the nation of Israel as a people group. That principle applies to that tribe. Okay? So once Abraham put his faith in God and conceived a child, believed God, then the election was sustained through God's determination to keep his own promise. You know all those promises that he made to Abraham? Right? All those promises. Look, I'm going to make your seed like, like all the sand in the sea. I'm, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make your tribe so big and your family so big that you can't even count them all. Yeah? And I'm going to use them to magnify my name in all the world. Listen to me. Those promises happened as a result of Abraham's faith and he's even doing it and he's preparing to do that as we, as we talk, even right now. God is working on that in the nation of Israel. And so... <clears throat> rather than looking at Jacob and Esau and getting into that, because that's, it's a doozy there. And we're really, we do have to dig. I, I want to say this. What's keeping you? What's keeping you from the promises of God? Now, again, doctrinally, this is about the nation of Israel and about 
about God's elect people, okay? But we're going to use them as an illustration for us and our personal lives this morning. What is keeping you from accepting the promises that God has extended to New Testament Christians? Things that he spelled out in the other parts of Romans, like direct access to God, like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, like a mission, like a ministry, like a purpose to live out. All of the wonderful things that come with knowing Jesus Christ, what's keeping you from doing that? What? I know what's keeping you is it's faith. It's faith. Are you, this morning, going to receive the promises that God has extended to you? You can't just gain those through osmosis. You can't just gain those promises because you sat in, in, in these chairs this morning and heard me preach. You, you don't get to feel extra spiritual this morning. You don't get to do that. What God is telling us is that the only way to have access to him is through faith. And we have to believe him for that, just the way Abraham did. And we have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. Either Jesus Christ died for my sins and rose again, or he didn't. And you're faced with that. Anytime you come to a church like this one, you're going to be faced with that truth. And some of you this morning have not yet decided. The verdict is still out. But I'm telling you that there is a book right here. It is a very old one. Okay? It's approximately 4,000 years old. And you know what? 45 different authors at least wrote this thing. And they, they, I consider those men to be prophets. Okay? God gave them his very words, and they wrote them down. And as I read this book, and I've read it for about 25 years of my life now, um, I have yet to find a contradiction. So what do I do with information like that? When I read this book and I recognize it as divine in terms of its inspiration, I have to do something about that. Because if that's true, if this book is divine and the gospel is divine, then I'm obligated to worship this God. I'm obligated to do so. And you are faced with a decision this morning. Will you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? And are you willing to give up anything to actualize the promises he has for those that believe in him? Will you do anything, including dying to yourself and asking forgiveness for your sin and acknowledging the things in your life that are sinful? Would you give those things up? I mean, what we're going to read next is that Esau was willing to trade all that for a bowl of chili. Listen, you you want to be born into God's family? Then you have a decision to make and it requires faith. And so as we worship this morning, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask that if, there, if you, are, you, you want to struggle through this, and you want to ask me questions, or you want to grab somebody and pull them aside, this is your opportunity to do this. We refer to this as the invitation. And the invitation just means that you're invited to grapple with God. You're invited to sit down up here, or sit aside, pull a chair off to the side, and sit down and pray with someone, or talk to someone about what it means to believe the Bible is true. Amen? I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, as the worship team comes up and as they prepare to play music, God, I pray that we wouldn't, uh, in the midst of singing, use that as an excuse not to sit down and pray. Uh, Pull our friends aside and pray. Pray for lost souls if you need that we wouldn't use this as an excuse not to grapple with truth, 
Not to ask hard questions, because God, you invite hard questions. You love hard questions, because it gives you an opportunity to prove yourself out. And so God, I just ask that you would prove yourself this morning. As we go into this time of worship and invitation, God, would you make yourself known through the presence of your Holy Spirit and the acknowledgement of truth. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.